You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Genesis part three, right? Three falls in a row, and we find ourselves again in this foundational book. In order to get the most out of this passage, I realize not all of you were here for those previous two uh, run-throughs of Genesis 1 to 11 and then Genesis 12 to 26. And so let me give at the beginning of this sermon uh, a recap so that you can see and hear where we've been. God made a good world. In fact, he made a very good world. And he placed man in it in order to fill it and guard it and keep it and rule over it as his priests, his kings, and his prophets. But Adam and Eve, the first couple, seduced by the serpent rejected God's wisdom and His goodness, and they turned aside to their own way. They rebelled against their Maker, and they plunged the world into depravity and destruction as the Holy God began a total war against human rebellion, corruption, and pride. In Genesis 3, God judges the sin of His creatures. He casts them out from His presence. The wages of sin is death. But in the midst of his judgment, God also gives mercy and hope. He promises that a male child will one day crush the serpent's head and put the world to rights. And from there, in Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6, we see sin as it spreads out and infects everything. Infecting every area of human life, uh, brothers killing brothers, men taking more than one wife, violence spreading abroad until in Genesis 6, we see God's total war against human rebellion as he cuts off all flesh in the flood and preserves only a small remnant in the ark, Noah and his family. And then we see in the subsequent chapters as that remnant, that holy, righteous remnant themselves turned to their own way, and again, Noah falls, and his sons sin, and the corruption and depravity again continues until God scatters the nations at Babel. That's Genesis 1 to 11. And then beginning in Genesis 12, God sets out on a new plan to make the world right again. He selects Abraham, and he makes very great promises to him. Abraham and his family are now the bearers of God's blessing, carrying the hope of the world in their very bodies. God promises to Abraham land. He promises offspring. He promises protection and provision. Whoever curses Abraham will be cursed. Whoever blesses Abraham will be blessed. And ultimately, God promises that all of the families of the earth, the ones who have been scattered to the four winds, will one day be blessed in Abraham's seed. And so we follow Abraham as he grows in maturity, from a priest who establishes worship, hearing and obeying the word of the Lord, to a king who rescues others from war and oppression, to a prophet who stands in God's counsels and intercedes for the nations. We see him and his wife as they struggle with barrenness. And then we hear the amazing laughter when they conceive and bear a son, Isaac. And then we watch in dismay as God commands Abraham to put his laughter on the altar, sacrificing Isaac as a burnt offering. And then we marvel when 
God substitutes a ram because he has seen Abraham's resurrection faith through his costly obedience. And so we see Isaac grow from the son on the altar to the husband who receives Rebekah as his bride to finally being a father in his own right. He and Rebekah have twin boys, Jacob and Esau, and we see the struggle and strife in this family even as God continues to bless Abraham and his offspring. And running throughout these stories is a recurring theme that puzzles and perplexes us. It's the use of deceit and deception on behalf of the patriarchs. You remember Abraham deceives Pharaoh and Abimelech, calling Sarah his sister so that those wicked kings don't kill him and take his wife. Isaac follows in his father's footsteps, passing off Rebekah as his own sister when they dwell among the people of the land. And when we preached through those passages last fall and we described the sister-wife deception, we noted that there really are kind of two alternative ways of understanding the passage, those passages. Either the patriarchs are failing to trust God and therefore deceiving others, and yet we see God's faithfulness despite their sin, or on the other hand, the patriarchs are wisely and shrewdly dealing with wicked kings and God blesses and preserves them in the face of the tyrants, using their deception for good. And if you want to understand more about those two alternatives, you can go back and listen to the sermon on the sister-wife trick at the city's website. But I highlight the challenge of Abraham and Isaac's deception because in the present passage, we're faced with more deception, this time from Rebekah and Jacob. And as with the sister-wife trick... Part of what we want to determine, if we can, is whether Rebecca and Jacob are acting faithfully in deceiving Isaac or whether they're acting sinfully in deceiving Isaac. So briefly run through the passage one more time. Isaac is old. He can't see well. Calls Esau, tells him to hunt game, prepare a meal so that Isaac can bless Esau before he dies. Rebecca overhears, comes up with her own plan. She tells Jacob to pretend to be Esau so that Jacob will receive the father's blessing instead. Jacob's reluctant at first because he thinks he'll get caught, but he goes through with the plan. Isaac, a little suspicious at first, but after smelling and feeling the animal skins on Jacob, he eats his meal and blesses him, asking God to give him prosperity, the dew of heaven, the fat of the earth, fruitfulness, Protection, whoever curses you will be cursed, whoever blesses you will be blessed, and significantly giving him rule over his brothers. They will bow down to you. Jacob then goes out, Esau comes back, and when Isaac realizes that he's been tricked, he trembles violently. Esau begs for a blessing with tears. Bless me, O my father, even me, bless me. And Isaac blesses him saying that he'll dwell away from fruitfulness, away from prosperity, that he'll live by the sword, that he'll serve his brother Jacob, and one day he will throw off the yoke. Esau grows in his hatred for Jacob, plots to kill him, so Rebekah encourages him to flee to her brother Laban until Esau's anger subsides. Now, at one level, this seems very straightforward. Surely, it's wrong for a wife and a son to deceive a husband and a brother. To trick an old man is a sin. 
Surely this is an example of God using sinful means to accomplish His good purposes. That happens all over the Bible. We're going to see a bunch of that in this last half of Genesis. God using the sin of men to accomplish His good purposes. That's possible. However, there are a number of elements in this story that point in a different direction. Got four of them. First, we have to remember and recognize the importance of God's promise to Rebekah back in chapter 25. And so if you don't remember, I'll read it to you. When she's pregnant, she feels the twins struggling in her room, and she's, she's going, what's going on here? I don't, I don't understand. And here's what God tells her. Listen very carefully. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the older will serve the younger. So before the twins are born, God overturns the standard expectations both then and now and insists that the younger son will rule over his elder brother. And that promise given to Rebekah shapes everything else in this story. Second, we've seen earlier Isaac's persistent preference for Esau. Genesis 25, 28, we're told Esau is a skillful hunter, and we're told Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. He loved his food. He could make a mean, I don't know what kind of animal, what are they hunting? Deer? A deer steak? I don't know what it is. He's, he, Esau is a, is, a, is a good hunter, skillful hunter, and knows how to prepare the food, and his dad loves it. In other words, Isaac's appetite and love of delicate food is governing and guiding his decisions. His love of Esau's food is front and center in that passage and is front and center again in this one as he asks Esau to hunt, kill, and cook an animal before he blesses him. So in other words, Isaac's belly exercises a significant influence on his decision-making. That's the second thing. Third, we have to keep in mind Esau's immorality. In the previous sermon on Genesis 25, I noted that the descriptions of Esau throughout the passage echo a number of other ungodly figures in Genesis. We're, so here's a couple of them. Esau is described as a man of the field, and he hates his brother. That reminds us of Cain, another man of the field, who hated his brother. We're reminded of Lamech the boastful man with multiple wives, as Esau, at the end of chapter 26, takes multiple foreign wives. And we're reminded of Nimrod, the skillful hunter and tyrant who builds wicked cities like Babylon, back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. So those descriptions of Esau as a skillful hunter, as a man of the field, as a man with multiple wives, echo these ungodly figures. And we're supposed to see in Esau a reflection of them. And at the end of Genesis 26, as I said, we're told Esau marries multiple foreign wives. And the reason this is a big deal is not simply because of the polygamy, but because these are Hittites who presumably did not worship Yahweh. These wives, we're told, were a source of bitterness at the end of 26, a source of bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. That's a key word. So much so that at the end of the passage we just read, Rebecca loathes her life because of the daughters her son has chosen. And then finally, most significantly for Esau's immorality, 
In chapter 25, Esau despises his firstborn birthright, selling it to Jacob for a pot of stew. Like his father, Esau's appetites exerts an inordinate influence on his decision-making. That's the third thing, Esau's immorality. Number four, we must remember that Jacob is introduced as a blameless man, dwelling in tents. As we noted last fall, the word in Genesis 25, that's Genesis 25, 27, where we're told uh, Jacob is a quiet man, dwelling in tents. That word for quiet, almost everywhere else in your Bible is translated as blameless. Job 1.1, Job is a blameless man. Genesis 6.9, Noah is a blameless man. Genesis 17.1, God tells Abraham, walk before me and be tamim, quiet or blameless. And so those four factors, God's promise to Rebekah, Jacob's blamelessness, Esau's immorality and Isaac's preference, those four things in the larger story help us see more clearly what's happening in this deception. Isaac's desire to bless his oldest son is not a simple matter of a father wanting to give something good to his children, especially in light of how he actually blesses him. You remember this, right? This is really, really important that you see the contrast. God had told Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. When Jacob comes pretending to be Esau, so Isaac thinks, I'm talking to my oldest son. And what does he say to him? Genesis 27, 29, be Lord over your brothers. They will bow, your mother's sons will bow down to you. That's massive in this passage. What Isaac is doing is he is attempting to deliberately and willfully overturn God's promise and plan. This is high-handed, direct defiance of God Almighty who gave this family these promises. Even more than that, he tells Esau who he thinks is Esau, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And that's an echo directly of the promise to Abraham. Isaac is attempting to give Esau the promised blessing of Abraham. He will become the carrier of God's blessing. He will become the one who bears the hope of the world. And God had said, it is the younger son who will carry this blessing. God chose Jacob to be the heir of promise and Isaac is saying, no, Esau will be. And he does this. This is what's so shocking. He does this in the face of Esau's evident and obvious ungodliness and immorality, those taking of many wives that's sowing bitterness in the household. The fact that he despised the father's birthright, that was years ago, and his son cared so little about the birthright from his, his inheritance that he was like, yeah, Jacob, you can have all of my inheritance, a double portion. That's what the firstborn should get, a double portion. So they would, if there's two sons, you divide the father's estate into thirds, and the oldest would get two-thirds, and the youngest would get one-third. And Jacob said, give, give me it, I'll give you the stew. And Esau said, I don't care about that, take it. And Jacob gets it all. Even in the face of that, Isaac says, I'm still giving it to him. We're meant to hear Isaac in Isaac's intention to bless Esau as an act of rebellion against God 
which I believe is exactly how Rebecca heard it. She recognizes Isaac is attempting to overthrow God's promise, and she acts shrewdly and deceptively to prevent her husband from making a grave mistake. In deceiving her husband, she is being faithful to God and the promise he gave to her. The promise that Jacob will carry the blessing and Jacob will rule over Esau. And so, and we see her virtue here. One of the reasons I think we can say what she's doing in this plan is virtuous. I was actually just looking in my, my son's action Bible. He's got an action Bible like it's a graphic novel type. And I was looking at it, and the way that they present the story is that Rebecca is this kind of very shrewish. She's like got Jacob by the cheek. She's like, you go in there and get that blessing, okay? That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. But th this, is a very con this is a confusing story to many people, and they think uh, Rebecca and Jacob are plotting in this very conniving, evil way, and Isaac is just this very old, obedient man who gets tricked. That's not what's happening. It's a confusing story. You can get very confused. My, my sons, a year or so ago, they were in Target with their mom, um, and my youngest turned to my oldest and said, Sam, I'll sell you my birthright if you give me the rest of that icy." It's a confusing story. It's hard to know exactly how to apply it. But we see Rebecca's virtue in her willingness to face the consequences if the deception fails. Like if Isaac catches Jacob, Jacob's like, what if I get caught? I might get cursed here. And, and his mom, Rebecca, looks at him and says, the curse that will fall on you will fall on me. I will take it. I'm going to bear the risk here because I know we're being faithful to God. In other words, this story, I think, is similar to other stories in the Bible of righteous women like Abigail. Remember the story of Abigail, 1 Samuel 25? Abigail is married to a harsh and foolish man named Nabal. His name literally means fool. Like Nabal is the Hebrew word for fool. And you're just thinking like, Man, his mom didn't love him very much or something. <laughs> Nabal means fool. Abigail's married to him. David, at the time, is on the run from King Saul, living in the wilderness. And while he's in the wilderness, he's protecting Nabal's flocks so that nobody steals them. And then he sends some young men to Nabal and says, hey, we're running low on some supplies. Can you provide us with some, some supplies? We're on the run. We've been protecting your flocks. And Nabal uh, begins railing at David's messengers. Who's David? I don't even know who that is and doesn't even care. Insults the anointed king. And when it's reported back to David, David says, oh, no, 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 no. And he gets 400 men, and he's going to go back, and he's going to teach Nabal a lesson. A servant tells Abigail what her foolish husband has done, and so she takes matters into her own hands. And she sets out with food and gifts to meet David, falls down on her face before him, asks that the guilt of her husband fall on her head. Follow me here and pleads that David be merciful to her husband and her house. And David, seeing her virtue and her discretion, blesses and praises her and grants her request. Abigail goes back, tells Nabal what she spared him from. David was on his way here with a war party, and Nabal basically has a stroke, and 10 days later, God kills him. Both Abigail and Rebekah, at great risk to themselves, act without their husband's knowledge to keep their husbands from making grave errors and committing great folly and evil. That's what this story is about. 
One final note. One evidence that we're correct to see Rebecca and Jacob as righteous in their deception is what happens in the next chapter. This is anticipating. Genesis 28. Look there real quick. You remember that when Isaac discovered that he had been deceived, he says he trembles violently. and We have to go, what kind of trembling is this? I take it to be the initial stage of terror at conviction of sin. It eventually leads him to repentance because... Note the connection between chapter 27, 46, and 28, 1 to 5. Rebecca wants to send Jacob away to protect him from Esau. She tells Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of them, what good will my life be to me? And then the very next thing, just skip the chapter division, Isaac calls Jacob and notice what he does. He blesses him. This time intentionally and with no deceit. Isaac's not upset. Isaac doesn't think, hey, you swindled this, you're a bad guy. He says, he calls his son, he said, now I'm gonna give it to you for real. I'm gonna give you the blessing deliberately with my eyes open and gladly. And he tells him, don't take a Canaanite wife like your brother did. Go to Laban, marry one of his daughters and notice what he says. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give, key phrase, the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. In other words, Isaac has come around. He now freely and gladly offers to Jacob the blessing of Abraham just as God had promised. And the repetition of the blessing, the reference to Abraham is meant to tell us that Isaac has realized his error and he's repented. Now, what do we do with this for ourselves? What's, what does this passage have to teach us? All right, I've got two main ways that we can be instructed by this passage. Number one, at this church, we believe that God has created the world in such a way that men will be the head of their homes. Call it complementarianism. Men and women are complementary, and yet when it comes to the home, when it comes to the church, men are called by God to be the heads. Paul tells us that the husband is the head of his wife, Ephesians 5, and calls upon wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. And we believe here that faithful headship on the part of husbands and fathers and godly submission on the part of wives and mothers leads to life and joy and fruitfulness in the family and from the family out into the world. The burden of a family's spiritual well-being, their provision, their protection falls ultimately and primarily on the husband and he must rely upon God's grace and bear the burden gladly. Which means in normal circumstances, a husband will listen to the counsel of his wife. He'll seek her wisdom as he seeks to make decisions, and they seek the Lord together. It means he's going to show honor to her as the weaker vessel, as 1 Peter 3 tells us, recognizing in her a co-heir with him of the grace of life. And in those cases where unity of mind doesn't happen, a husband's headship means he is called to faithfully lead and she is called to gladly submit. That's what we believe. The present passage shows the limits of a wife's submission to her husband. 
She is to submit to him as to the Lord. But her submission to her husband is not an absolute or a total submission. For example, if her husband attempts to lead her or the family into sin, if her husband is sinning gravely against her or against others, she is permitted, this passage she's encouraged, to use her wisdom and discernment to honor God and seek the good of both her husband and her family and others by not going along with her husband. Normally, her submission to God means she submits to her husband. And that's true not only of a husband-wife relationship, that's parent and child. That's uh, king and people, or president and people, or councilman and people. Any authority relationship. Normally, submission to God means you submit to the authorities that God has established. But if her husband is gravely sinning against God, then submission to God means disobedience to her husband refusing to join him in his rebellion. And I stress the word gravely because every authority figure except Jesus is a sinner and will make mistakes, will make errors of judgment. And, and it's a scary thing, whether you're a wife following a husband, whether you're child, children following parents, whether you're an employee following an employer, you know, nations, whatever kind of authority, uh, congregation following pastors, whatever the authorities are, everybody's a sinner involved. And there's going to be places where we disagree, and in normal circumstances, it still works. Submission, God still calls us to submit. But in circumstances of high-handed rebellion and defiance, where the harm to others and the dishonor to God is obvious, a wife or any kind of subordinate is permitted to honor God by their disobedience. Correspondingly, that means husbands, authorities, pastors, you may not demand absolute submission from anyone. You may not ask those under you to render to you what they may only render to God. A husband is under authority just as a wife is under authority, and he must exercise his authority in submission to God's authority. And when he doesn't, if he abuses his authority, if he defies God, if he harms others, he ought to be profoundly grateful if those under him refuse to follow him in his disobedience and instead put roadblocks in his way. That's the first application. Number two, this passage underscores Esau as a warning to us. It's a warning. In this passage, Esau's godlessness and his immorality finally catches up with him as the blessing that was supposed to go to him goes to his brother. This is the fundamental lesson that the book of Hebrews takes from the story of Esau. Listen to this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 to 17. Strive for peace. This is an exhortation. Strive for peace with everyone. Be at peace with everyone. And strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a holiness that if you don't have that holiness, you won't see the Lord. A pursuit of holiness is the effect of our faith in Jesus, which leads to our seeing Jesus on the last day. It goes on. 
See to it, this is a warning from the author to Hebrews, to us. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it, listen, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you all know, now you know, you all know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's the lesson that the author of Hebrews draws from the story of Esau. Note the connection, okay? Note the connection. We're called to strive for holiness so that we may see the Lord. We're to strive to obtain the grace of God, that mercy that will triumph over judgment on the last day. Watch out for the root of bitterness, which is a likely reference to idolatry. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 29. Watch out for the root of bitterness, which, which uh, springs up, defiles many. His ungodly marriages contaminate and affect many people. And then notice the connection between the two stories about Esau. When he despised his birthright and here when he loses his blessing. The author of Hebrews wants to make a distinction between them, okay? He sold his birthright here and then afterward, he, he still wanted the blessing. Like, he despised the birthright, but I still want the blessing. Bless me, Father. But he's rejected. No opportunity to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Now, it says he sought it. He sought it with tears. What's he seeking with tears? Well, if you go back and you read the passage, what is he crying about? He keeps saying, bless me, Father. Bless me. Bless me. I want the blessing. I want the blessing. Here's how I think the author of Hebrews is connecting the dots. Esau had the birthright by birth. And he's waiting for the blessing, like when Isaac's going to die. He has the birthright just because he's born, and he's waiting for the blessing. He despises the thing that he has, the birthright, sells it for the temporary pleasure of some stew, and then later when it comes time to receive the blessing, God has rejected him. So also, we have the opportunity the right. We have the opportunity to gain the right to eternal life because of what Jesus has done. That's what's offered to you right now. You can have that birthright, that entitlement to an inheritance right now. You're here, like you're all here in the church right now, sitting under the preaching of God's word as I am offering to you on his behalf grace in the gospel. You can have it, every one of you. But if you despise that grace, if you fail to lay hold of that grace, if you don't treasure that grace, if you sell that grace for the fleeting pleasures of sin, then when it comes time to inherit, when the day of inheritance comes, you will be rejected no matter how much you cry. In other words, it's not that Esau really wants to repent. He really wants godliness now, but he can't. It's that he wants the blessing without treasuring the pathway to that blessing. 
He doesn't want holiness. He doesn't want godliness. He doesn't really want the grace of God. He just wants the reward at the end. And there are thousands of people like Esau. There are millions of people like Esau. They don't want to go to hell. They don't want to be judged by the living God. They want the reward. If you ask them, they want the reward of eternal happiness, and they actually expect to get it. But they don't want God, and they don't treasure the cross, and they don't love the grace of God in the gospel. Instead, they treat it very lightly. They sell it for a few moments or a few years or a few decades of cheap, fleeting thrills. They presume upon his grace and they tell themselves that they can live in sin now and there will be time to repent later. I'll get, eventually I'll get right. And Hebrews wants us to know that a day is coming when it will be time to inherit the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Jesus, the blessing of eternal life and joy and reward in fellowship with the living God and the people who have despised the grace offered now will bitterly cry and weep. They will find no place to repent because it will be too late. Those who do not seek holiness will not see the Lord. So here's what the application is. Very, so I want to plead with you. Just don't be like Esau. Don't treat precious things lightly. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Like Hebrews, I want you to have this image, that story that Jeff just read. I had him read the whole thing because I wanted you to have that image in your head of Esau after years of immorality and godlessness. And I want you to have the image of him the moment he realizes it's too late. that he's not only lost his birthright, but that he has lost the blessing of God and of his father. I want you to see Esau with that great and bitter cry, blaming his brother still, not taking ownership, not saying, I've blown it, I've made a mistake, Jacob's cheated me, it's all his fault. Still blaming his brother, his blameless brother, for his own folly and godlessness. And I want you to see him lift up his voice with weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you to consider Esau and be warned. And then I want to encourage you because Isaac too was governed by his appetites, even in his old age. And in his final days, he's engaged in high-handed rebellion against God's plan. But thanks to a discerning wife, and a blameless but shrewd son, he's spared from ruining himself and his family. There are still consequences. Like the fact that he does what he does is why his, his sons fight. Their strife is owing to the father's sin. But when he realized what he'd done, he trembled violently and he turned back to God. There will be a day when it will be too late to repent, but it is not this day. Now is the appointed time. Now is the day of salvation. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, turn to Jesus. 
in humble faith, and he will receive you. Which brings us to the table. This table is a sign and symbol of our birthright as Christians. This is the birthright. This is what you have now. The bread and wine at this table testify to you. You have the right to be called a children, the children of God. You have the right. You can say, I am a child of God. That's what this table says. You are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And so don't despise the simple meal. Receive it. Treasure it and what it represents in humble faith as we proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Invite the pastors, the team, as I pray for us. Father, I do pray for everyone here. I am sure that most of the people in this room believe in Jesus, profess faith, and have been baptized. And therefore, they are those who have the right to be called children of God. I pray, I pray, God, that they would not despise their birthright, their new birthright, but that they would cling to it and treasure it and never dream of selling it for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Help us, O oh God, to take heed of the stories of Scripture, the patterns of Scripture, and gain a heart of wisdom. Bless us as we share this meal together. In Jesus' name, amen. His body is the true bread. Let us serve him.